Today, as we come to the final chapter of 1 Samuel, we've been journeying through this book under a series titled, When Mess Meets Mercy. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We kind of come to the end of, the, uh, end of this book that kind of ends tragically. Uh, there's a tragedy at the end of this book, but if we, listen, if we look close enough and if we listen carefully, we're going to see a subtle glistening from even a narrative like this. And so as we begin our time together. I'm just going to read the narrative for us, and then we'll dive right in. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 31, the Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men. When the men of Israel saw on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Beth Shan. When the residents of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all of their brave men set out, journeyed all night, and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterward, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being a God who speaks and discloses yourself to us. We thank you for that. And Father, as we sit before you in this moment with our Bibles open, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice that your Holy Spirit would be at work within us to speak to us and to work within us that we might be transformed through the study of your word. So we pray that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed. We pray that you would bring humility where humility is needed. We pray that you would bring salvation where salvation is needed. God, we love you and we pray for your grace to abound over these next few moments in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Saddam Hussein ruled Iraq for 24 years before his reign came to a humiliating end. When a coalition of forces led by the United States kind of entered Iraq to depose this ruler, Newsweek chronicled the events and, and conveyed in an article the humiliation of this fallen ruler. This is what they said, in a part of the world where pride and dignity mean everything. The images were clearly intended to shame. A nameless doctor or medical technician wearing rubber gloves was seen closely examining the man's hair, 
perhaps looking for vermin. Prodded with a tongue depressor, the man opened his mouth. The doctor peered at the pink flesh of his throat and scraped off a few cells for DNA identification. And then the world saw the man's face, haggard, defeated, meek, and weak, the glorious leader, direct descendant of the prophet, the lion of Babylon, the father of the two lion cubs, the anointed one, the successor of Nebuchadnezzar, the modern Saladin of Islam had been brought low, forced to bow down to contemplate his fate while waiting to stand trial. And he would later be hung for crimes against humanity. It was a humiliating death for a very proud man, a very proud ruler. Well, after ruling Israel for what some scholars suggest around four decades or so, King Saul's reign also ended in a humiliating fashion. Now, Saul was not arrested. He was not tried. He was not executed in a human court. Instead, he stood trial before the Lord. And it was the Lord's judgment that would be sentenced. And it was the Lord's judgment that would fall upon Israel's first king. For he has forsaken his covenant obligations time and time and time again. And the prophet Samuel warned Saul before anointing him king, saying, Look, if you're going to be king, rule the people well. Rule them towards covenant faithfulness, towards loyalty to the Lord. Listen to his word. Do what he says. But if you fail to do that... Things won't go well for you. And so Samuel gave Saul a warning, both to the king and to the people. He said, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. And that's exactly what happened. Saul did not love God. He did not love God's way. He did not love God's people. What Saul loved was himself. He loved his power. He loved his reputation. He seemed to cherish those dynamics above everything else in the world. And so the Lord's hand turned against him. The Lord's hand was against him when he stepped out onto the battlefield to face the Philistine at Mount Gilboa. Now, if you recall, the previous day, Saul was fearful of this moment. So much so, he, was, he ran to the witch of Endor to seek counsel and to seek guidance and the Lord in his gracious sovereignty commandeered that moment to communicate a message to Saul, once again warning him of how his hand is turning against him. So Samuel the prophet would speak once again, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me and the Lord will hand Israel's armies over to the Philistines. And this is what went down. So the mess created and the mess chronicled in this chapter is one that has been building for a long time. It had been building throughout Saul's tenure as a faithless king, as an arrogant, self-absorbed king. It had been building up to this climactic moment. So the mess created, it starts here with a dying king. We were told that Saul was severely wounded by an archer's arrow. Now, when I watch movies set in medieval times or ancient wars where swords and arrows and all those things, the archers are the ones who annoy me the most. Uh, because these are the guys that aren't big enough and strong enough to step out on the battlefield and go toe-to-toe with someone. Instead, they stand afar, and they just launch arrows. They're kind of the ancient equivalent to a drone pilot. It's, it wasn't good what these archers were doing. And apparently, one of them is getting props for picking off the king. And as we hear of an arrow falling on Saul as he's on the battlefield, we should remember Hannah's prayer earlier at the beginning of 1 Samuel. 
where Hannah declared that the bows of the warriors are broken. So there's irony here at the end of the book when the faith that is expressed at the beginning of 1 Samuel is nowhere present at the end of the book, where the faith that was expressed there is not operative here. In fact, it seems to be the contrary fact found. The bows of the warriors are not being broken. They're being effective. They are falling on Saul. And Saul's too hurt to flee. He can't get up and go away. And he knows that a ground trooper will soon come and finish the job. So he turns to his armor bearer and he commands his armor bearer to run him through. And this is where we begin to see what Saul's biggest fear actually is. You see, Saul wasn't afraid of dying. Saul was afraid of dying at the hands of his enemies. Saul's biggest fear wasn't death. Saul's biggest fear was humiliation. And this makes sense because his entire reign has been about proving himself. His entire reign has been about exalting himself in the eyes of people and establishing a powerful reign and rule compared to the surrounding nations around him. This has been his drive. This fear of humiliation is what motivated him to want to kill David in the first place. After David killed Goliath and chopped off his head, his numbers in the polls began to skyrocket past King Saul's, and King Saul hated that. He didn't like the fact that David was more famous than him. He was more loved than him. And so what did he do? He set out to kill David. You see, Saul does not want to be humiliated. So he tells his armor bearer to finish the job before these uncircumcised men do. And he uses that word in a derogatory fashion. He doesn't want to die at the hands of his enemies. Now, Saul was keenly aware of ancient Near Eastern customs when Regarding the treatment of mortally wounded enemy soldiers, he knew the practices. He knew the protocols. He knew that if his body is captured by enemies, he's going to be mutilated. It would be mutilated. He would be decapitated. It would be treated in a humiliating fashion. And this he did not want. However, the armor bearer refuses to finish the job. And when he refuses to finish the job, he's actually moving in David's direction. He's acting in ways that David acted before because David was Saul's armor bearer at one time. And not long after Saul turned on David, David was given the opportunity to kill the Lord's anointed one, to kill King Saul, but David refused. And he would say, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. So both armor bearers, they refused to lift their hands against the Lord's anointed, against Saul. They showed great respect for the office, even if the one occupying that office wasn't worthy of much respect. And Saul's fate rested not in the hands of an armor bearer. Saul's fate would rest in the hands of the Lord alone. And the Lord has chosen on this day not to break the bows of the warriors. Instead, much like he does throughout the book of Judges, he uses enemy forces as instruments of judgment and justice against his own people. So it's a tragic ending when Saul pulls out his sword and he takes his own life. The king dies on the battlefield. And it just takes five words in the Hebrew text to report of this death. There's not much fanfare. The momentous significance of this event does not require a lot of elaboration. The brilliance is in the concision. It's such, so concisely stated, saying this is what happened to Israel's first king. 
in the words of 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 should hit you and I differently today. They should hit us differently in light of this passage. Because there, Samuel the prophet would say to the people when, the, when they were receiving the king that they wanted, the king that would make them like the surrounding nations, remember what he said to them. He said, now here is the king you've chosen, the one you've requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. This is a dying king. You see, Saul now represents everything you and I are tempted to look towards to make us feel secure in a hostile world. Israel wanted a king so they could be like the other nations. They rejected the Lord in the process, and that has now backfired. This is the king they wanted. This is the king they chose. This is the king the Lord handed them over to in a moment of judgment. Now, when we first meet Saul, he's tall. He's physically impressive. He's a lot like the kings of the surrounding nations. But now he's dying a humiliating death. And Israel is called to consider the king that they've chosen for themselves, this dying king. And so the question for you and I this morning is how many of us, how many of us are devoting our lives to dying kings? How many of us are looking to that which will not last for security, for satisfaction, for joy, for life? for confidence, for courage? How many of us are looking to that which does not last to provide us the very things that God himself longs to provide for his people? You see, you and I are surrounded by what Charles Taylor refers to as, sec as uh, social imaginaries. And a social imaginary is a concept or an image that is constantly being conveyed to us through our music, through our movies, through our advertisements through social media, these concepts and images that are bombarding us, convincing us that these, these are what it takes to have a good life. And what happens in the process is that when we see in others what we do not currently possess, we draw the wrong verdict upon ourselves and we think our lives are not justified. We think our lives are not valuable. We think, think our place and position in this world is a sham. You see, we share with ancient Israel this existential dread that if we don't have what they have, then we're lacking the good life. And we express our insecurities a million different ways as we say, give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. And so rather than living a holy life devoted to the Lord, we far too often settle for a common life as we pledge our allegiance to dying kings. But here's the challenge. Dying kings can only rule crumbling kingdoms. And this is what's going down here. Saul dies and so does his sons. He doesn't have an heir to his own throne. And when the men of Israel on the other side of the valley saw the king and his sons fall, they flee. They abandon their cities, and the Philistines come and settle in them. They're giving up territory to the enemy. The kingdom is falling fast, a lot like Afghanistan falling to the Taliban. This is happening quickly. Dying kings rule crumbling kingdoms. And so we want to think well today about, are we devoting our lives to that which will not last? Are we seeking security from insecure sources? This is a warning that comes to us in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 2, when the Apostle John would write in a loving 
way to warn us against dying kings and crumbling kingdoms. This is what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, he's not talking about physical creation. World there isn't talking about trees and flowers, things that we do enjoy and that we thank God for. What he's arguing for is a Christless existence, a culture, a system of self-centered, self-absorbed living. He's saying, look, living that way is not going to last. So don't fall in love with a self-absorbed existence. Don't fall in love with a Christless life. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world, here it is, with this lust is passing away, dying kings, crumbling kingdoms, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. See, this is the warning, replacing God's role in our lives with any aspect of the created order, whether they be a good thing or a bad thing, is a fool's errand. Anytime we replace what is infinite with something that is finite, that will only lead to humiliation. It will only lead to the type of end we see illustrated in this story. And Israel is learning this lesson firsthand. They are learning this lesson the hard way. The mess created resulted in a dying king, a crumbling kingdom, and a humiliating spectacle. Notice what happens next. The next day the Philistines came to strip the slain. They found Saul's body, stripped stripped it of its armor, and sent messengers Throughout the land, spreading, get this, spreading the good news. Spreading the good news that in the temples of their idols and among their people. Just let that language sit with you for a moment. The Philistines are spreading a gospel. Now, it's a false gospel. The Philistines think that they have prevailed over Israel's God. They've only conquered Israel's idol much to the shame of Israel herself. And this humiliating dynamic is, again, once again, we are warned against it by John in 1 John in the New Testament, where he pastorally and lovingly says to us, says to us, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from that which will only humiliate you. That's the warning of this story. That's the warning of 1 John 5, 21. The Philistines take Saul's armor, they store it in their temple, and then they hang his corpse high for everyone to see. A humiliating spectacle. Saul's greatest fear is realized in that moment. And once again, we are called to consider the words, now here is the king you have chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. You wanted this. You insisted on getting this. So the Lord gave it to you. He handed you over to that desire. Now look and consider where it got you. Now when the residents of Jabesh Gilead heard what was happening, when they heard what the Philistines had done, all their brave men set out and they journeyed all night and retrieved the body of Saul and his sons. They returned to Jabesh and they burned the flesh of the bones and then buried the bones under the tamarisk tree before fasting for seven days. Now I wonder, 
I wonder if they knew how fitting it was to bury Saul under a tamarisk tree. You see, at Gibeah earlier, Saul used to sit under this type of tree with his spear in his hand in a posture of power, and he would rule his people, surrounded by his servants. And now his story has come to an end with his bones being buried under a tamarisk tree, stripped of any shade of power. The king was dead. Now this tamarisk tree, it represents the mess created in Israel by Israel. It represented this far fall of Saul and the devastation of Israel at the hands of the Philistines. And so when the book kind of comes to this end, it begs questions that you and I have to ask as we consider what will become of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people redeemed out of Egypt to serve as a light to the nations. What will become of them? And if something becomes of them, what will become of us, the nations that they are to be a light to? Is the world going to be blessed or is the word world destined to be cursed? Is this the fate of all people everywhere? So this tamarisk tree, it speaks of the mess created, but hear this. This tamarisk tree also speaks of the mercy promised. It speaks of the mercy promised. You see, years prior, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree to commemorate God's promise to take care of him as he journeyed through the land of the Philistines. So he says this in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. It's fitting that Abraham planted this evergreen tree that can withstand a desert climate to commemorate the everlasting God who promises to take care of his people as they themselves journey through this desert life. There is mercy promised in this tree, and the Lord would take care of his people through a coming king. But this coming king would not be one of Israel's own choosing. We saw where their choice would get them. Instead, this coming king would be one of God's own choosing, one who would maintain covenant loyalty, one who would be faithful to God all the days of his life. This coming king would rule and reign in righteousness. Now, we're hinted at this coming king. We're hinted at this coming king in the very next verse of the Bible. You know, the word, the numbers, 1st and 2nd Samuel, those are misleading because 1st and 2nd Samuel constitute one work. It's one book. In the very next verse, in chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Samuel, we're told that after the death of Saul, David returned. Much like Abraham, the Lord took care of David as he journeyed through the land of the Philistines. God promised that David would be king, and now he's returning to seize his throne. God's promise towards him would be fulfilled. Now, David, again, is just a type of a much greater one to come. David was a good man. He was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't the God man. He was a man after God's own heart, which is a good thing to be, but what the world needs is the very heart of God embodied in human flesh to come our way. And the very heart of God is what is found in the person of Jesus who stepped onto the scene of Galilee proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Hear the good news of me and my kingdom. Now, this gospel would be quite different from the gospel proclaimed by the Philistine forces. Their gospel centered on the humiliating death of King Saul and his crumbling kingdom. That's what they were celebrating. That was good news to them. But this gospel that Jesus would bring, it would center on the humiliating death of himself and his compelling kingdom. As he had come into the world to establish a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will never be overtaken. For this kingdom is what Jesus put on display throughout his life and ministry. He showed the world what life will be like when all is said and done. And the kingdom of God is fully consummated, appearing on earth as it is in heaven. He showcased what that would be like. That in this kingdom, sins will be forgiven. In this kingdom, sicknesses will be healed. In this kingdom, the chaos of a fallen creation will be calmed. In this kingdom, Satan and demons will be exiled forever and banished to hell. In this kingdom, death itself will be defeated. That's a compelling kingdom. A compelling kingdom that we are called into. A compelling kingdom that we are privileged to give people tastes of as we journey through this fallen world. Living by faith in Jesus. And the hope of this kingdom will not be built upon a humiliating spectacle that confirmed the certain defeat of God's people. No, the hope of this kingdom would be built upon a humbling spectacle that achieved certain victory. See, in pride, King Saul wanted to avoid being humiliated. And so in the end, his death didn't serve anyone. But in humility, King Jesus chose to die a humiliating death so that he might serve everyone so that he might reign as the king of this compelling kingdom of God, that he might usher in a new reality for sinners and sufferers like us. Though he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even a death that at first glance looks like defeat, and at first glance seems utterly humiliating. History Today magazine took a close look at the shame of Roman crucifixion and the humiliation that was attached to it. And the author speaks to its reputation, writing, It was a death deserved by the most unworthy of all unworthies. It was a death with grim humiliation, ignominy, and abasement. They point out that other religions have previously believed in a dying God, the Greek God Dionysius, and the Egyptian God Osiris. Both of those gods experienced violent deaths, but their deaths were quick and completely free from shame, but not the death of Jesus. Not from the death of the one who stepped into human history and is chronicled for us in the scriptures. A real event event suffered by a real human being who was God in the flesh. This God, this crucifixion, contrasted deeply with those others. So the writer would say, let the Son of God deign to assume a mantle of humanity. But why go to dregs? Why stoop to the deserts of a rogue slave beneath humanity? 
And they'd point out that this, the new theology of a God's voluntary humiliation was completely alien to Roman thought. And today and all throughout history, many are unwilling to accept a God who, out of pure love, would endure such shame, but not us. No, we look to the cross of Christ and we find in the cross a humbling spectacle. We find in the cross the one who endured humiliation so that you and I never have to. So that we might live the kind of life that is never put to shame by sin, suffering, or death. We can journey through this world with our heads held high and dignity restored, not because of what we achieve, but because of what we receive in the coming and the crucifixion and the kingdom of Christ. You see, in humility, Jesus chose to be humiliated so that we might turn from the crumbling kingdoms of this world, ruled by all sorts of dying kings, and step into the compelling kingdom of God in which he reigns and rules. Which is why Philippians 2 keeps going, for this reason God highly exalted him and gave Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we step into the kingdom of God. But stepping into the kingdom of God is not a step up. Stepping into the kingdom of God is always a step down. You and I are more like Saul than we care to admit. Sin has inverted us so that we live in an insecure world in an insecure way. Feeling as though we must prove ourselves, justify ourselves, attain for ourselves that which God freely gives to us. And so we spend all of our days stepping up, devoting ourselves to dying kings, ruling crumbling kingdoms, not hearing the words of the gospel that says, hey, don't step up, step down. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. That's the word of the gospel. And so what we do as citizens of this kingdom right here, right now, we embrace the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. We embrace an attitude of humility and we live in humble obedience to Christ and his kingdom, listening to his word, doing what he says and whatever comes our way, we accept with the recognition that our God is gracious, our God is sovereign, our God is good, our God's got us. And he's going to take care of us as we're journeying through the land of the Philistines, so to speak. He's going to preserve us in this desert life. And this tamarisk tree, this evergreen tree, stands as an eternal reminder of that reality. So as followers of Jesus, we can consider the ending of 1 Samuel and we can take hope. We can take hope and we can embrace humility because the gospel of Jesus will never end in our humiliation. Stepping down doesn't lead there. Stepping down ultimately leads to exaltation. It ultimately leads to you and I being lifted high by the God who created us by the God who loves us, by the God who's making all things new even now. So we worship Jesus, we respond to Jesus, we cultivate humility 
like Jesus in response to this beautiful reality. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we consider what it means to humble ourselves before you? God, would you open our eyes to see the beauty of the mercy promised? Help us to consider the coming of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and living and dying and rising again. God, would you give us grace to consider the compelling nature of your kingdom, that we would recognize what life looks like when you get your way, when you are in charge, and would you help us to embody that and to express that in the world that is as we move towards the world that is to come. And God, would you give us grace to see the humbling spectacle of the crucified Christ. Let us see his humility and his obedience. Let us see his self-giving love so that we might follow suit and adopting the same attitude he has, living lives of obedient faith, walking in humility before you and before the watching world. And we look forward to the day, Jesus, when you return and make all things new, setting all things right in the new heavens and the new earth, We look forward to that day. Would you help us to live in light of that day even now in Jesus' name? Amen.